1: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased to have with us Professor Catherine Stoner. She is Professor of Political Science at Stanford University and a Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institute. And today we are discussing her book, Russia Resurrected, Its Power and Purpose in the New Global Order, published by Oxford University Press. Welcome, Professor.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
2: Professor, why did you write this book?
0: Um, well, I started the book actually um, about uh, six or seven years ago, just before Russia annexed Crimea, and um, it was partly prompted by... Um, a, a talk that had been given at Stanford by uh, a member of the intelligence community um, in, in D.C., who um, basically said, you know, the line that Obama delivered in 2014, which is Russia is is a is a weak regional power that attacks its neighbors not out of strength but out of weakness. And I thought, I, I guess that's right. Um, but it turned out, as I wrote the book, um, I started to think differently about what power is, what uh, states have in their toolbox. And Russia is actually much more influential in the world, uh, not just in its neighborhood, than is typically thought. And so that's why I wrote the book, um, was was to try and provide that corrective and to think about state power differently.
2: So in essence, the thesis of your book would be what exactly?
0: It's that um, we underestimate Russian power, um, globally, um, it is power is not just men, military and money. That is the size or health and wealth of a population, or um, the size uh, of uh, the military um, and how many guns it has. Russia has a lot of those, um, but that it also has other instruments of influence over other countries, including not just the sale, for example, of oil and natural gas, which you know, we're all feeling Russia's power and influence there in the global markets for both of those commodities, but also in controlling pipelines um, that ship those commodities produced by other countries, for example, in the Middle East, and that Russia also has uh, soft power in parts of the world, not the Western world necessarily, um, it you know has attempted uh, vaccine diplomacy in different parts of, of the world um, over COVID, and it also uh, has become a donor nation um, in, for example, sub-Saharan Africa, um, and this is all rather remarkable given that 30 years ago the Soviet Union collapsed completely, that and it, and it left in its wake Russia as, as, uh, as one of the 15 successor states of the Soviet Union. Um, but Russia taking on the debts of the Soviet Union and the international presence of the Soviet Union, but with a completely broken economy that was not just in recession in 1991, 92, but de- depression, um, and has been called by some economists the worst um, uh, economic downturn in, in history outside of wartime. So to come from that to the situation where we are now talking about Russia as a great power rival in some ways to China and the United States um, and to the the prevailing post-World War II global international order is pretty (laughs) remarkable. Um, And so that's really, uh, the book then explains, um, was that recovery necessarily going to be against the West? Could it have been with the West? And my argument there is that a lot of Russia's use of these accumulated power tools in the last 30 years today uh, is connected to uh, its aggressive uh, domestic policy and the crackdown that, that Putin has implemented in particular within Russia since 2012. Um, and so the more repressive the regime has become internally with its own people, the more aggressive it has become Um, externally in its foreign policy. So that's the thesis of the
2: book. If you had to write the book today, how would it be different? I'm thinking in particular about questions related to Russian soft power, Russia's um, at that time, but no longer, I believe, success with um, partnering with far-right parties in Central and Western Europe, and in particular in, in terms of the current war in Ukraine, The Russian military's, I think an accurate description would be subpar performance.
0: So, so I would question all of those characterizations. I think I I can take the first one, uh, the last one first, which is, um, uh, I think that is a popular line that the the Russian military has, uh, you know, wasn't able to take Kiev in two days as Putin thought. Well, that is you know I think, as a result of poor intelligence and willful misreading uh, of Ukrainian people and the resistance they would encounter, and so I would compare that to our own uh, war in Iraq, uh, where you might remember George uh, W. Bush was uh, assured by Dick Cheney and Don Rumsfeld that the Iraqis would welcome American tanks uh, with open arms and that, you know, this would be relatively quick and dirty. And of course, it wasn't. We were there for a long, long time. Same with Afghanistan. So I just, you know, that that doesn't mean that the American military was weak. It is definitely the strongest, most capable military in the world, far more capable than the Russian military. No one would question that. But I would also refer you to what's going on right now, unfortunately, in Ukraine with uh, with the, how the Russian military is is working. And you know, they do now control uh, about 25% of Ukraine. They occupy it. Um, so they have more than doubled what they had in 2014. Um, whether or not they will make another attempt uh, at Kyiv, they can last a lot longer. So I think the media has been very impatient that this war be over uh, and that the Russian military should have taken Kyiv, should have taken Kharkiv very quickly, and it shouldn't have lasted long, but I, I don't... Uh, uh, I think there was some misreading of intelligence. It was bad intelligence. Um, and Putin does not know the resolve of the Ukrainian people at all. He doesn't think in terms of uh, of societies as having kind of their own uh, free will or agency. Um, and so, you know, I think that's what has happened. But uh, unfortunately, this war is not over. And if you look right now, Charles, at, at who's winning and who's losing, well, um, in terms of territory, the, the Russians are, are taking it over. Although the Ukrainians are fighting extraordinarily bravely uh, and are, you know, it's existential for them. Um, and the, uh, they are, you know, learning to use the weaponry that, uh, that uh, we and, and our NATO allies have provided. But, you know, the, the Russian military, and uh, the book does go through this military reform. Um, it is pretty capable in terms of what it has. And one thing that is, it's pretty capable with uh, is artillery, and that's exactly what we're seeing right now being used against Ukraine, unfortunately. So I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't rush uh, to the conclusion that the, it's a debacle for Russia just yet um, uh, because it's not over, unfortunately. Now, is the military almighty um, and uh, uber-confident uh, no, I think it's a Russian bureaucracy, and there is corruption and the book goes over this too within Russian bureaucracy when it happens in the military, you get a lot of dead soldiers, you get them selling off uh, you know equipment, and we saw that in Belarus so it has some of the same uh, pathologies and problems as as other large Russian bureaucracies, but it is very, very big, and so it all depends on what you think its goal is and i'd also refer you to Syria. Uh, where, um, but, you know Russia was essentially the air force for uh, Iran, which were the ground forces in uh, beating back opposition to Bashar al-Assad. So um, everyone thought, and Obama unfortunately said, this will be a you know quagmire for Russia. But we don't think like we do. If you you know we tend to think if we broke a country in, in a conflict, we fix it. Uh, but That's not how the Russians operate. They have no obligation. Uh, in their minds, to do that, and so what they've gotten from the war is, uh, is you know, permanent port in, in TARDIS um, that they're making deeper and deeper, um, so they can bring in tankers to ship oil, and the pipelines they now control that flow over northern Syria from uh, Iran and Iraq. So I do I would really caution people to to um, look at what's happening uh, with uh, unfortunately with territory in uh, in ukraine now and, and this is a war of attrition that you know uh, if we don't keep supporting uh, Ukraine very robustly, unfortunately the Russians could could win uh, over time um, nothing they will but um, just because they didn't take keep in two or three days um, that doesn't mean their military is weak and incapable um, the other uh, I'm sorry. What was the the first question? Was
2: I believe the first sharp question. Power, soft power. Yes, soft power, particularly. Well, actually, the first question was soft power, and the second question related to um, Russian. Yes, Russian ties with far right parties in Western and Central Europe.
0: Yeah. So I I those ties are still there, um, and you know we're we're seeing some of that. Uh, uh you know paying off in a in a way in terms of you know you could argue Marine le Pen has you know she came in the last election closer than she than she ever has uh, to winning the French presidency, which would have been a disaster for NATO. well, who lent her uh, uh seven million euros um, it, you know the last time she ran for president um and who was trying to support her this time well Russia, and that too is in the book by the way, um the way that Russia uses money to try and interfere. Uh, in In European politics um, that's also in uh, at, they also you know, use what we call sharp power, which is to kind of change the information uh, environment um, for populations in in europe and the, and it's been relatively successful um, doing that uh, in that you know there is especially under trump it was sort of low hanging fruit um, for russia and and for China if it chosen to do that I mean, Putin at, at one point was more popular than Trump uh, in, in Europe as a, as a figure. So again, if you want to you know, kind of understand that more, um, then, then the book does go over that too. Um, the other thing is that, that um, you know, Viktor Orban in Hungary is, is kind of the bad boy of the European Union. And, and the strength of the European Union, of course, is in its unity. Um, they make all decisions unanimously. Or not at all. But the problem is that they make all decisions unanimously uh, or not at all. And uh, and so, you know, we just saw with uh, with European Union trying to impose full uh, cutoff um, and sanctions on uh, a receipt of, um, of gas, natural gas from Russia fail um, in in. in uh, the sense that it, it is not cut off from, from Hungary. So, um, it, it, you know, they still have have that influence. And I would point out that, you know, another form of of power and influence, of course, is, is uh, Russia's, and, and the Europeans got themselves into this situation and we're now seeing Russia under Putin um, take advantage of this is, of course, the extreme dependence of uh, Germany in particular, huge economy getting uh, more than 40% of its natural gas from Russia. Uh, Now, Russia has started to decrease that amount, and Germany has declared that it will decrease the amount it gets and is starting to store up natural gas in anticipation of being completely cut off from Russia. That obviously hurts both sides in that the Europeans actually face a a huge um, uh, deficit of natural gas, which runs their economy. Um, and uh, the Russians could face uh, um, you know, an, uh, an income deficit from that if they can't sell supplies elsewhere. But already they, there is a Nord Stream 1 um, in addition to Nord Stream 2, which we have sanctioned and through which natural gas does not flow yeah, from Russia to Europe. But Nord Stream 1, the Russians themselves have turned down the flow. So it's only about 60% of what normally flows into Europe. So these are all sources of of influence, um, and one of the goals of the book is to try and get people to think more um, broadly about what is power, what is what is influence. And over the you know, the big punchline, I guess, is that over the last 10 or so years, um, under, under Putin, Russia has quite carefully built up what it can. Now, I would also argue, you asked me how I would revise the book. Well, I wouldn't revise it. Um, you'll see it's quite data heavy And it tells you what Russia has. And then it goes into the domestic politics under Putin, saying that if, you know, Russia might use what it has differently, if it had a more open political system. And in fact, it did do that. Uh, It's not inevitable that that uh, Russia is uh, at at war with the West. Um, There are a lot of people within Russia who don't necessarily want this. Um, war, but right now the regime is so oppressive. There's not that much they can do to protest, but let's see what happens. Um, But uh, one thing I would add is that, you know, Russia has, since since the book is called Russia Resurrected, um, over the the 30 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1992, the the beginning of, of economic reforms, I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, Charles, that, um, In 1992, um, there was hyperinflation. Uh, People were uh, bartering instead of using rubles. uh, uh, You know, in the 90s, and the economy, by the end of the 90s, begins to grow again, even when oil prices are low. Um, Then Mr. Putin has the good fortune—some people call him Vladimir the Lucky—has the good fortune of governing at a time between 2003 and 2008 when. Oil prices go up to 117 dollars a barrel on average in the 90s. There's 17 dollars a barrel, and um, and so the Russian economy grows 8 percent year on year, on average, and in that period, um, and um, suddenly, uh, Russia becomes an upper middle income country. So, over you know people have nice houses, they have nice cars, from a situation 20 years earlier when they you know, the economy was collapsing. Um, but this is not, this is almost despite Putin being in power, not because of Putin. Uh, between 2003 and eight, he didn't actually have that much influence on global oil prices. He, Russia wasn't, you know, a member of OPEC plus, which it is now with Saudi Arabia uh, and other OPEC members. So now they do have influence over oil prices. And, and this has happened over time. So one revision I might make is that the U.S. shouldn't have, withdrawn in the way that it did um, from really 2012 onward from leadership in the international system. Um, this got worse under Trump um, and, uh, and you know Russia and China have taken advantage of that clearly. Um, I think Russia has been underestimated not only in what it can do, which the book demonstrates, but what under Putin it's willing to do. So the fact that Russia is an autocracy, and an increasingly uh, a personalized autocracy focused on Putin and a small group around him matters uh, a lot because autocracies behave differently in international politics than, than do um, democracies. So, you know, this is, uh, this is partly that the, the influence um, uh, that Russia has uh, over global politics now and over other countries is, is partly by design, uh, uh, but it's also, a result uh, of our own withdrawal from from global uh, leadership, which evident, you know, sooner or later, if you ignore the other countries in the rest of the world and what they're doing, they, then you know the reality will bite you. And here we are in 2022 with a with a war in the middle of Europe.
1: slash nbn50 to
2: get 50% off. What do you mean exactly when you characterize Russia as a patronal autocratic regime?
0: Oh, so that it is based uh, on, well, first of all, Russia is not a democracy. Um, elections happen, but they don't determine uh, policy. Who wins the elections is not really determined by voters. Um, and there's very we have very oh, can you hear me Good data on that. Um, And the, um, I guess the other thing is uh, that it has become a a patron client system under Mr. Putin. So um, the so called, there there are two groups of so called oligarchs, these very rich, largely men. Um, And um, the first group uh, um, made their money in the 1990s through privatization and and then the second group made their money because of the proximity in the, in the 2000s um, to Vladimir Putin. And so the, the second group in particular uh, is dependent um, on having Putin as a patron to keep their wealth. So we wouldn't expect an elite coup from those folks since they hold their wealth at the pleasure of the president. So that's really exciting. Um And there are, there are similar patron-client networks. Um, throughout Russia, it does in a sense create some dependency at least we thought so um, uh, on with Putin on keeping his clients happy um and so this this may be gradually over time a point of pressure if these very rich people can't because of the sanctions we've imposed um, access their assets that they have accumulated abroad so we're seeing you know uh, sort of the sensational things like their billion-dollar yachts being taken, but, you know, they can't get to their properties in Geneva or um, uh, in the French Riviera uh, or even New York or Florida uh, anymore, but they also can't access their money um, that's held in uh, U.S. or European banks. Their kids can't go to school abroad in Europe. Uh, Their wives and mistresses can't go shop in Paris. And, and over time, this may, you know, cause friction and and get Putin to negotiate uh, when they feel they have enough territory uh, in Ukraine. So that's what it means.
2: Why is the realist narrative of the wellsprings of Russian foreign policy, in your opinion, flawed?
0: Well, it's mis- it, first of all, it is the Putin's line. Um, well, 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 it completely ignores... Uh, uh, the modern international system. It sees the world in 19th century terms where uh, the the, uh, little peoples of Ukraine and Poland and Hungary are simply pawns of uh, great empires like uh, the Austro-Hungarian or um, um, uh, Habsburg uh, uh, versus the French versus the Russians. And this is not the world we live in um, anymore, right? We have we have uh, it's human rights, we have sovereignty uh, of countries, um, and um, this is a mistake I think that uh, that, that Putin has made here um, in underestimating Ukrainians. To get back to you know, doesn't the Russian military look weak? Well, doesn't the Ukrainian don't, doesn't the Ukrainian society look strong, right? So he had expected that. Uh, Ukrainians are not interested themselves in self determination because they aren't really a people uh, for, for quote unquote Professor Putin. And he's written this it's in this little diatribe on history uh, that came out last year. Um, well, that's wrong. Uh, uh, he's being selective in terms of where he picks up r- the Russian Ukrainian uh, historical connection. But if you, by this logic, you could argue that the territory that is now modern Ukraine. Uh, and most of the territory of what is now modern Russia for that matter should belong to Sweden and the Swedish empire. uh, If you go back to the very origins uh, of Stephen Ruth Um, and then the Mongols uh, who after all occupied uh, what is now Russia for a long time. So, you know, where, where you decide you pick this up uh, is highly subjective, but right now, uh, and, uh, Uh, Ukraine has been a sovereign country for 30 years. The Ukrainian people have a right to self-determination. It's not like suddenly breaking away as a province of Russia. They have been independent since the collapse of the Soviet Union, as have the other 14 uh, republics uh, in addition to Russia uh, of the Soviet Union. So that's first. Second, in 1994, Mr. Putin's immediate uh, predecessor as president, Boris Yeltsin, Russia's first legitimately elected president, signed uh, an agreement uh, called uh, the Budapest Memorandum in 1994, um, uh, promising that in return for Ukraine, uh, and it wasn't just Ukraine, it was other post-Soviet states that had nuclear weapons from the Soviet period on their territory, in return for those weapons going to Russia, Russia would respect sovereignty and the US and Britain and France would guarantee it that agreement is what mr. Putin has broken he conveniently misses that in his narrative um, the second thing is that uh, although uh, uh, NATO has indeed expanded um, it and, and maybe Far enough, because evidently, you know, the commitment uh, at Article Five of the NATO treaty, which is an attack on one member is an attack on all, is enough of a deterrent uh, to Putin that he's not going to the Baltics. But of course, Ukraine was not a member of NATO, wasn't about to be a member of NATO. NATO had in fact not expanded to Russian borders uh, for five years before uh, 2014 and the annexation of Crimea. And it wasn't about to add Ukraine. So, so the argument that I had to do it, the West was encroaching on our security, is quite simply false. That is not true. Uh, and NATO has, uh, you know, the last expansion was to add North Macedonia uh, in, uh, in about three or four years ago. So really, I think that actually weakened NATO as an alliance. Do you think the American people, Charles, are going to go to war for North Macedonia, even though it is. I mean, you might, but I mean, others will not. Let me assure you, my neighbors probably don't. Um, and more, you know. So, so if anything, that weakened the Article Five commitment. Um, so NATO was not expanding in a threatening way. There was nothing imminent that was about to happen. On in, in February uh, 2022 this year, when when Russia attacked a sovereign country that was not threatening ethnic uh, Russians, um, and uh, it attacked that same sovereign country and took its territory in 2014. Well, we don't do that in the 21st century. <laughs> and you'll remember, we went to war with Saddam Hussein, uh, with uh, Bush's father, H.W. Bush, um, because he grabbed Kuwait. So, um, you know, if we allow this uh, the kind of thinking, then where does it stop? Um, what about Hungary? What about Poland? Um, why not go farther? Um, And and this will just cause war. When when the world was constructed of great powers fighting one another in hot wars like this, uh, it it led to the First World War and the Second World War, and millions and millions of people died. And so that's what is at stake um, here.
2: So um, for you, unlike the realist scholars, if through some magical means Andrei Kozarev once, began, once again became Russian foreign minister, for you that would have enormous impact on Russian foreign policy. Whereas for the realist, it's not supposed to have any impact.
0: The realist, well, to some degree, right, uh, but not completely. Um, the foreign minister in Russia has no influence currently under Putin. Uh, it's, it's it's foreign. You know, Lavrov is he's a chameleon. He does whatever he's told to do. Um, and, uh, he, he doesn't have any sort of moral compass, or, uh, you know, he, 10 years ago, he's quite a different guy. Um, so, and same with, with Dmitry Medvedev, the former prime minister and president of Russia, who's now gone off. The defense. This is survival. Um, it is, it, it matters who is president of Russia and the, the rules domestically of Russia. In the 1990s, Russia works much more often. We don't need to call it a consolidated democracy, but domestic politics matters, um, right? In, in any country's foreign policy, they are linked. And the realists don't view the world that way. Uh, instead, they uh, they view only you know, they don't think about where state interests come from in, in their foreign policy. And they see them usually as uh, and it's you know all about power maximization relative to other countries. They don't don't necessarily descend to the next level, which is why, power for what, to do what, um, what motivates that beyond just looking at your neighbor. And, of course, that's called domestic politics, and you can see the impact of that here in the United States. We are behaving quite differently right now uh, internationally under President Biden than under uh, Donald Trump, right? I think Ukraine would be a province of Russia if Trump was president. In fact, I'm pretty sure, uh, unless his cabinet and Congress could restrain him um, or act independently, as they started to do in foreign policy. So that's what matters. It's not causative. Uh, the foreign minister, who was, of course, foreign minister under Yeltsin and lives here now in the United States, by the way, um, but uh, it's, it's really, you know, the, the domestic political system. And that's something that, that um, realists look at as largely fixed. Um, and so they would say uh, that some of them, and I don't want to say all of them, but, but someone like John Mearsheimer would say that, and I've debated him, in fact, on this, he's just factually wrong, that it doesn't matter who is president of Russia. Any of them would have done this. That's, that's, his, that's his stance. And that's just wrong. That's absolutely not true. Not true at all.
2: On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. You've been listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel New New Books Network. Thank you, Professor.
0: Thank you very much for having me, Charles.